0: Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hey guys, David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. I really hope you are all doing well. If you have listened to uh, Jonas Dodu on our podcast before on episode 21, then... You will be you will you you probably love that episode because it was one of our most popular episodes ever and one of my favorite episodes and this one is going to be amazing as well. You're going to love this one as well. So Alan is actually the owner of Speedworks Bath and he works. uh, He specialises in a couple of things. He's a coach and he works uh, a lot in rehabilitation particularly for athletes, working with very high-level athletes. And then also that kind of continues on into his work with game speed, just making people faster and more agile and actually helping these improvements actually transfer over into their sport. So uh, Alan is a phenomenal coach, a super smart guy. We spoke about... Uh, some of those concepts that Jonas spoke about as well, switching projection and reactivity, how important they are, a lens that you can use them. And Alan went more deep into that stuff on the rehab side of things. He spoke about what he maybe thinks about and does differently to the traditional model of rehab, which is just kind of mobilize strength. and strengthen. He spoke about especially even in the early phases of rehab, getting, getting, uh, working on coordinative stuff intermuscular coordination being specific or semi-specific to the gait cycle making sure that like all these muscles are working really well together even early on and throughout the rehab process so there's tons of good stuff there i spoke about like plyometrics getting people back into sprinting change direction back into sport um loads and loads of good stuff i think you're really going to enjoy it uh please give it a share uh if you do like it let me know what you think and yeah apart from that enjoy the pod and um here is alan for you guys alan welcome to the show thank you very much for joining me how are you
1: i'm good thank you it's uh it's clearly an important one mate because the coffee's got cream in it this morning so it's it's clearly (laughs) a special occasion
0: you know what i did this morning um i because i usually don't record this early i'm not i'm not sharp early in the morning so i got in the car and i left kira at home and she said, are you going out to Tremor? We go out to Tremor Beach every morning for a little walk and a coffee. And I said, no, I'm going go to go <laughs> uh, to the office. I need to make sure I'm prepped for this podcast. And uh, so drove the car. And guess where I ended up? At the fucking beach. And I got out of the car. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing here? It was just complete autopilot. So <laughs> so I had to grab a quick coffee and come home.
1: I'm honored that you've ditched the wife and, uh, and, the, and the dog wants to, to, to speak to me.
0: <laughs> that's how special you are um so you're 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 in bat where, where are you from alan
1: uh originally from a little place just outside of glasgow so made the, made the journey down south um which is a bit warmer a bit nicer i've been down here for a long time actually um but much to my my missus is italian so despite me thinking it's warm she thinks it's like the ice pole. so um yeah there's always a bit of conflict going on there around the temperature
0: where where in italy is she from
1: uh, she's from Bologna, so up the kind of the more the more the north side. So yeah, she came over. She came over to the UK at the same time that I um, moved down to to Somerset, um, and and that's when that's when we met. So so yeah, she's uh, she's seen the whole the whole journey. She's seen it all go from being at Bath Rugby to leaving Bath Rugby and starting at my own thing. The highs, the lows. She's seen it all. So.
0: Mm-hmm. I I actually. I I I don't think I know a single Scottish person. Would you believe? No, pro- there's probably someone that I'm really good friends with that will listen to this and be furious that I just said that because I probably do. But really? I can't think of a single Scottish person that I know for some reason, which is
1: just You're weird. Inside the country, like it's not safe to be like out, and if the occasional lemming manages to cross the border, it's like met with met with resistance. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so you give us a bit of a background or you've given us a little bit there but like what you're what you're up to at the moment uh i had jonas on our podcast i don't know what episode but i thought yeah. it was actually a really good episode obviously because jonas is so great so obviously you crossed paths with him at some stage and now you're um part of that business but also doing your own thing i think so maybe you can give us a, a bit of an intro please
1: yeah of course um, so background-wise, like it's it's fairly un- unique initially. Um, I did I was heavily involved in sport as a kid. Played international level golf. Um, went to uni on a golf scholarship. Uh, studied sports and exercise science. Didn't really learn a great deal. To be perfectly honest with you, I was more um, what we call it invested in the social scene. I would say, um, and then uh, came out of there. Knew that I loved sport knew that I wanted to learn a bit more, I had got involved in the athletic scene at university a little bit and was just like, wow, this is fascinating. So ended up taking up an internship at Scotland Sevens, um, which was just like nine months of just learning on the job, unpaid. They gave me a tub of protein at the end of the nine months, um, which I was massively grateful for. And I think there's probably quite a lot to learn from that, I reckon, for some younger people out there that like no, you, you probably don't deserve to be paid the second you leave university, and, and once you once you get into the pro sport realms, like it's you got to kind of earn a crust a little bit, or you got to earn a, earn some respect in those regards, and that's what I did. And um, what, learned, what, what
0: brand? What brand of protein?
1: It was, I actually remember this, it was PAS, and it was, ca- it was caramel flavor, and it was the leftover one that none of the boys wanted. <laughs> it, was, it was awful. I think no, I got, one,
0: no one wants yeah, caramel after a workout.
1: I got like two scoops in, and was like, oh, well, that, I'm not having that again. Um, and then I uh, realized, damn, like I know very little about basically everything in sports performance. So I decided to do a master's. Did it in sports rehab and therapy, which was brilliant, but again, only scratched the surface in terms of learning, a lot of theory, less practical, and I'm a very practical person in nature. Um, and after that, I took up a role at Millfield School, um, where I was like I was working like 60, 70 hour weeks and coaching for, I don't know, 40, 50 of those hours. Um and that was brilliant because at the time I, I thought it was like slave labor, but at the t- what was really happening was I was starting to develop a bit of a coaching identity. And I think that's absolutely massive to be able to, you need hours under your belt to be able to establish what type of coach you are and, and basically your philosophy to some, to some degree. Um, and then from there I joined Bath Rugby um, and in between there I did my UK SEA assessment um, which was interesting because I was competing um, at a high level in weightlifting at the time, um, and almost almost got close to the holy grail of double body weight clean. So I was I was okay. I wasn't I wasn't really bad. Um, went to the UK SEA assessment and failed my weightlifting portion of the course, which was interesting. Um, so so uh, and then what? Yeah, um, I I apparently uh, didn't. What did I not do? I I showcased a double knee bend which is an interesting thing to fail somebody on, considering it's going to be very hard to produce for us if you don't bend your knees. Um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, anyway uh, so then I ended up going to Bath Rugby, started right down at the very bottom, and this is where like, I, I realized I, I, kind of, I was right at the bottom, writing five by five, squat, RDL, bench press, bent over row for everybody, and was basically just a program writer. And I didn't set foot outside the gym. And then gradually over the years, I started making my way up the ladder and ended up heading up the the academy in general. Um, And I was lucky enough in that period of time to head up a program for one of our schools that were like the feeder school to the academy. So I was able to experiment with all the on-field stuff, the agility side of things, understanding load management, dealing with rehabs alongside the physios. And that was like a really rich learning experience for me. And then from there, I ended up progressing to um, heading up the speed and agility program for the senior team um, and then also doing uh, the rehab programs for the senior team as well. So in that that kind of journey, I was learning, learning, learning. But then I got to the top level of the senior stuff and I started to realize, like, I actually don't know that much. I'm writing programs. I can lead a very basic speed and agility warm-up. But having listened to podcasts such as yourself and and other people reading books talking to industry leaders i was like actually people are doing stuff a lot different and by the sounds of it a lot better than me but in pro sport particularly where i was at the time with the politics and various things going on wasn't really in a position to um almost try out those things um and essentially was was understanding of my own area that I, d- I genuinely, I don't know what I don't know. So I reached out to Jonas. That's where the connection came from. Uh, I did a very unstructured ad-lib mentorship where I was like, these are my ideas. These are my thoughts. This is my situation. What do you think? And basically he was like, doesn't sound great. Here's what I would do. Reached out to people like Ender King. And I was explaining some of the some of the issues we were facing. Like we had a, we had a calf. I don't know if this is the this is probably politically correct in these days to call it, but I'm going to call it a calf pandemic. And it was like honestly, there was just calf injuries everywhere. And inside the program as a whole, there was just there was no plyometrics because the the person in charge of the program is terrified of them. They thought plyometrics will injure all our players, which obviously is the opposite of the truth. Um, if it's done well, um, there was a no speed and agility program whatsoever. It was basically just your classic. Let's get really strong, and then let's go on to the pitch and train rugby. And if we have strong athletes and forceful athletes, they will just find better solutions on the field. And when we started winning a few games, they were like, it's working. <laughs> and then when we started losing a few games and getting injuries, they were like, God, we're so unlucky. And I was just very, I was very understanding and be able to appreciate that we, just, we were not doing a very good job. Um, and that's when I decided there's so much more in the world to learn. Um, there's so much more I feel I can be doing with my practice. And I was starting to get real stressed. Like I was turning up to work, working 10 to 12 hours a day, knowing I was doing a crap job, but also knowing I could be a far, far better practitioner than I was. Um, and I, 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 I even got alopecia. I was genuinely, I'm not a stressed person, but I was stressed. And um, anyway, I ended up leaving. Two and a half years later, I'm where I'm at. So head coach of Speedwatch Bath, and that's my company, and um, it's been unbelievable. I, I've I've been able to work with some of the world's best athletes, rehab them from day zero to to return to playing for England and the Lions and all sorts of things, helping kids transition through a pathway which historically just goes go in the gym and train, um, on the field and and plugging gaps and then going out and consulting and mentoring other people as well which is from a professional club setting which has been amazing because you you learn as much as you probably teach when you do that side of things so um basically it's just been a big long journey of learning and uh, and it's been it's been brilliant and the last two and a half years have absolutely been the, been the pinnacle
0: that's awesome man sounds like you're on a really cool trajectory i didn't realize that it was only kind of not that long ago that you that you started that you went out on your own i didn't yeah. realize that so yeah. that's deadly Yeah, uh, it just shows that like for a lot of people working in whatever job ignorance is bliss where they don't they're not stressed about it because they, they don't realize that they're not doing a good job and it's not i don't think it's i don't think it's that they don't care but i just think they just don't maybe realize it they can't see it because maybe they just only look at like their colleagues around them. Like you mentioned that you look at other people, you've looked, you listened, you were trying to find out what good people are doing. I think if people don't do that, well, some people do it, but they just put their head in the sand and think, no, that, that must be wrong. Like they, they, there's just some kind of insecurity there, but I
1: think it comes down can to be it, a good
0: thing. It forced you to make, it forced you to make a decision. Yeah, like,
1: yeah. A lot. Like, I think it comes down to, I've always been somebody who's really keen on learning. Like it gets me, even it, even it gives me a sense of pleasure and pride and, and motivation to know that I'm learning and, and bettering myself from a practitioner point of view, for, for example. And when I feel like I've stalled out and I'm, not, I'm, no longer, I'm no longer questioning or I'm no longer learning from my own practice, I, I really lose motivation. And, and when I lose motivation for what I'm doing, I just I get like I get stressed about it because I, I know I should always constantly be trying to add on to my, my layers of skill um and that that really will, was the feeling when i was there you see it you see it honestly like the, the the phrase like we've always done it that way or 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 even even worse like hearing a new way and just instantly rebuffing it because because you've 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 got your we've got our system and actually it doesn't work but you're sticking with it because it's easier and less stressful to start to learn and change that is that is so prevalent in in some of the conversations I have with people who are working in professional clubs. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, familiar.
0: It's, it's familiar. That's, that's what it is. I, I often wonder, like, if we just, if we stripped away all the research, let's say, not, not that that's a good idea. It's a terrible idea, but we stripped away all the science and we were just left with, and all the like history of results and stuff. And we were just left with here's a bunch of people with different thoughts on things uh like different types of models here's all the precedent is gone let's just let's just work with what we've got and see what actually emerges from there i think we would emerge it with, with a very different idea of how movement develops and performance develops and rehab should be done than what is there so i think what's there and what's been done is just probably mostly been done because it's familiar that's why and yeah that's a yeah that's I, a I, 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 so I don't I, know I, how to um I don't think it's a terrible ad- idea
1: getting, getting, getting rid of all the academia. I, I, obviously, that's not going to happen. And there are some, some works which have been so influential to understand what we're doing, but in general, I don't think it's that bad an idea because from my experience anyway, if you go and talk to all the best coaches and all the best athletes, I think that's something we miss out. We, we need to speak to very good, very astute athletes more. They understand movement. as Maybe they can articulate it, in our terms, but they understand movement just as well, if not better, than we do. Honestly, I've learned so much from some of the super high performers that I coach that I have had richer conversations with them than I have had with professors and surgeons. And I think actually the the research, for the most part, just backs up what the really good coaches and athletes have been saying for about 20 years. Um, so I actually think, yes, obviously, academia is brilliant and it it influences our practice but really some of the gold and some of the foundations of our knowledge as coaches and and learners should come from brilliant coaches who have gone before us and brilliant athletes who have gone before us and who are currently in it and i think we'd, we'd we'd do a far better job if we if we did that a little bit more
0: yeah a mix of both is nice i don't um i don't know how to kind of start the question around your model because obviously it's so deep and there's so many different ways that we could you could go obviously in particular but what i suppose it it would be nice to just take an athlete who let's say they're injured they're in the, like early on in the rehab process and look at just compare and contrast like traditional type of model versus maybe what you would do with them and it doesn't yeah. probably matter let's just say a lower limb injury you don't necessarily have to niche down cause, yeah. You can if you want. But like traditionally I think it's like, okay, let's restore range of motion. Let's well, let's take after like any of the swelling and stuff is gone. Like, but restore range of motion, like build isolated strength, um, maybe start to get into plyometrics, maybe start to get into running and, and more specific stuff. Um you now obviously there's different things along the way, but can you talk somewhat about like what some of the differences there and how you would think about doing things, particularly early on, um, that might not exactly fit with, with that model
1: for sure. What a a great question. Um, so the, basically the nucleus of it is, is fairly similar, old approaches, new approaches. They, you want to restore joint function. Now, I think I actually posted on this fairly recently, but the amount of cases I get of again, high end athletes, who come to me and they start running and they're strong. They can they can drop jump, they can um, single leg squat, they can squat two times body weight, they can do X, Y, and Z, but they they can't do it at full flexion. Like they, they don't they don't have knee joint restoration, let's say in an ACL, for example. Like it doesn't matter how strong you are, if your knee doesn't work properly from a function point of view, like you are in trouble big time um so yeah so that's it. that's the first one the whole knee joint restoration thing um like dan path says this awesome quote and he says that a distorted pulley will free any rope and i think it's such a cool analogy because it basically just means like if the joint's buckled or, or doesn't work in any way it doesn't matter how strong the, t- the connective tissue is around it it will it will take a hit eventually um and you see that like we have these I like to talk about like after the big earthquakes or the big rupture or whatever it is that happens to you more than likely, if you don't restore your knee joint function correctly and properly, you'll ha- you'll continually have these micro tremors. Um, and we are trying to dull down these micro tremors. So that's, that's the first thing. Then you've got your, so in the classic approach, you would do capacity, hypertrophy, strength, power, plyometrics, run slow, run fast, Change direction, do agility, and then just go back into training Now, all of those components are appropriate, but it's just the timeline in which they happen like there's no reason why when if you 've had ACL surgery, literally two or three days off the off the surgeon 's table, you're not developing things really early, so like you talk a lot about foot control um, and the control of the foot and the integrate control of the foot and the knee and the hip, et cetera. You can work on that almost instantaneously at low level. Um, Then you can go after the the control of the pelvis and the trunk. And again, that tends to be in traditional rehab, right? We've got to the strength stage. So now we're going to introduce our planks, side planks. Maybe you might do a lateral flexion, who knows? Um but actually, the reality is <laughs> spice,
0: spice it up with a lateral
1: <laughs> like that's so crazy um, but the reality is you can you can start to do regressions of that type of work almost immediately so that instead of in the traditional model you've ticked all your boxes by month six and then by month seven, eight, and nine you 're ready to return to your feet. actually, if you do all the prerequisite work at, there's no reason why you shouldn't be on your feet at two and a half months, maybe even two months. Um, and that's certainly the case with some of the athletes I deal with um, and then the other thing about it as well is doing things early can be seen as being super aggressive so people oh my god you're doing um, lateral hip strength and trunk work at week one well aggressive is a continuum like ag- aggressive is if you're, if you're right down the far end of the scale of progressions of your whatever it is you're developing and you're doing it too early, then yes, you are being overly aggressive. But if you can manage and understand your regressions, there's no reason why you can't start super, super early. And then the whole plyometric thing as well, like your plyometrics, the second that you can tolerate holding, again, say a a long lever bridge, and you can tolerate um, doing some ankle taps, which again, most people can do. Also, the surgery technique's changed as well now. As long as you haven't done your meniscus, you're not in a brace. So all of a sudden, all that upstream and downstream um, physical deterioration doesn't happen anymore. So we can get into that stuff super early. The second you can hold a long lever bridge and the second you can toe tap, well, now you can do upright vertical drills that involve some element of system stiffness and active foot contacts. And the second you can do that, you're just on your progression stream from here going up progressively each week. So now, all of a sudden, you're you're running, you're you're doing your upright drills, which are in place, but you're doing them at week six instead of doing them at month six, and that's why, like for example, one of the rehabs I did recently was a guy called Anthony Watson who plays for England, and at, he was five months in and he PB'd his all-time velocity as an athlete, and this is bear in mind, this is a guy who's done a lot of speed training, so it just shows with. The appropriate stimulus done at the right time, um, started early, you can have. There's no reason why rehab shouldn't just allow athletes to come back the best version of themselves ever, as long as they got the time to commit to that process. Would be the caveat, obviously. Um, so yeah, so that's the that's the big difference. And then one of the other things as well is this: like we talk about a fast to slow or a speed based approach, um, and the speed based approach really. I start people off on, so their con- conditioning or their on-feet running is drill-based speed mechanics. So it's, it's developing this like mechanical, elastic coordination endurance first. And once you can produce high outputs and you can do that consistently over longer durations, then later down the line, we'll worry about developing your aerobic capacities from a slower, I hate the word, but I'll use it, plod running type approach. Because you need that to, to 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 uh what's the right word? To um collect your overall meters and volumes relative to going back to training. Um and to, to miss that out completely again it's like a it's a phrase, isn't it? Like it's a it's a continuum to be uh to be managed, not a not a dichotomy um to um to to just live by. So yes it's a speed based approach, but really it's just progressing things up and down the slider a little bit more in bias of the high force short time duration things rather than just trying to get super forceful and do it in long slow durations and then explore the slow running after that so that would that that, in a nutshell that would be the biggest difference i would say
0: so you place a lot of value then on restoring or maybe not restoring because maybe it hasn't been lost too much but training this kind of neural coordinative intermuscular coordination and semi-specific type of positions where like the ankle the knee the hip the trunk are all working together in things that look like running in things that look might not be at velocity but like even in isometric positions are very slow movements or you 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 value working on that early on
1: yeah like super super early now again the whole dichotomy thing like we the thing i I found this most on twitter by the way um, if somebody makes a statement people just jump to the opposite side of the statement and just go oh well you don't care about the opposite well no <laughs> yeah. the the reality is That's like a straw man they just yeah.
0: straw man the shit out of everything yeah
1: yeah right 100 <laughs> um so the reality is quad strength knee extension strength um calf strength are the bedrocks of your early to mid-stage rehab. Like, you're not escaping that. If you don't have a strong quad and you don't have the ability to either resist uh, knee flexion or to generate knee extension forcefully, you're you're pissing against the wind. But the point is that we're still doing, that's all traditional stuff. That's that's great and, and it does do a good job. But the point is that we are surrounding it and and, and covering it in this non-traditional approach where we actually go after the intermuscular coordinative motor control based approach so that you you don't need to go from strength and then start your running drills you've already done all the work and then you can use your plyometrics to bridge the gap between your between your gym and your and your on field and if you do a really good job it should be seamless there shouldn't be phases of this is our plyometric phase this is our running phase it should be vertically integrated gradually throughout the duration of the rehab so that you're always keeping streams of of, of uh, content in there continuously. So the athlete feels confident in everything that they're doing and physically they're able to, obviously. Yeah, 100%.
0: And I, I think that work not only complements the traditional strength stuff, but actually enhances it because... When you start to work on the ankle in that way, when you start to work on the knee and the lateral hip and the, the, the hip lock stuff and the, that coordination, there's a few, I think there's a few big benefits. One, it's fun. Athletes enjoy working on that stuff. It feels <laughs> like something like they would like to be doing. It's not just fun, but it also feels like they, they're getting all of this kind of in, information back from their body and they're working these muscles that they like to feel And also, like their gait starts to improve, even their walking gait starts to improve, which often is a massive deal for offloading their knee. An angry knee, it's very, very difficult to put on quad mass and actually build quad strength if you have a constantly angry knee. And if that angry knee is, if that knee is angry because it's not flexing and extending well, or also because not just like isolated range of motion, but actually you're not transitioning through the gait cycle well, then you're going to really, really struggle to, there's just constantly going to be inhibition around there. So I think this stuff is super beneficial in all those ways to enhance their traditional work. And then also, I think like people's, usually their first idea of getting an ACL back to any kind of yeah impact training is a, a couple of pogos and then like going for a slow ploddy jog and this is a, that's another great way of having, of getting a very angry knee again, or maybe not even an angry knee. Sometimes you watch them jogging and like, there's so much trying to offload that knee because they're, they're, there's nothing going on at that ankle. There's nothing going on at that hip that they end up with a groin issue or an Achilles issue on the other side. It happens just so often. And I think this stuff can be avoided relatively easily, just doing some simple things that like, like you're discussing.
1: That's, that is a class point. The whole, right, so you would talk about academia, right? So the contralateral injury argument after an ACL. So we, we, let's say we're we're in a traditional rehab setting. We we restore knee function, we get strong, um, and we don't really do our job in plyometrics, and we return to running, and we start doing our slow running. And if you've seen enough of them, you'll know that slow running with an ACL, um, usually, is going to result in some kind of big heel-based contact. You're going to resist compression at the knee from the ACL side, so you don't want to go into tibial shear. So you're going to resist it. Um, And then the other side is going to flex excessively from the spring mass model perspective. It's going to compress excessively, and it's going to push out, and you're going to have a hip displacement that's asymmetrical quite significantly in favor of the non-injured side. So, okay, so we've got that, but it's okay because we're running and we're we're accruing meters class, right? Happy days. So now we are building intensity and our non-injured side is doing more and more work and we're starting to pick up fatigue and it may be a niggle, it may not be a niggle just yet. And then we go to start to integrate back into sport and they've maybe done a few few max velocity runs, but really the majority of their work has been slow and and fatiguing on the non-injured side. And then they go to run or they go to do their, their sport and their training and bam, oh my God, it's happened again. Somebody's done their, done their opposite knee. Can't believe it. How unlucky. It's not, it's not unlucky. It's, it's just a, it's an amalgamation of everything that's come before it and a high level of neuromuscular fatigue on that side. And it's also trying to overtake and do more of the job because it's happier dropping into flexion and, uh, an extension. And, Honestly, like you, you, I see it all the time in the argument about, oh, I can't believe like we're still seeing these rates of non non um, affected side re injuries uh, or injury rates, um, and it can it can be avoided. I'm not saying it can be full, fully avoided. We don't know enough just yet, but that to me is one of the most simple ways that you can avoid that issue is by having a slightly non traditional approach and starting things early, creating the co contractions um and also developing potentially better better strength rates of force because if you are more elastic in nature and you're training more neural type coordinations and neural drive in your in your non-traditional coordinative of stuff then actually expressing the force that you've developed from a strength point of view is much easier and that has a huge impact in terms of the distribution of load and stress left and right and and that i think is a, is a massive thing that people aren't really talking about it probably i think should be
0: hey guys david here just a quick break from the show we just announced our workshops for the us for 2023 our only two workshops are going to be in new york city and washington dc teaching our lower limb rehab biomechanics and performance weekend workshops so we're going to be in new york the 7th and 8th of october and we're going to be in dc the 14th and 15th of october so come and hang out the early bird is available i think we sold about half the tickets in the first 48 hours so these workshops will sell out if you want to come and see us it's the only time we're going to be in the us for 2023 and i think 2024 because we're going to be taking a break from workshops so this could be your last chance i'll put a link for the tickets in the show notes below and hopefully you can come and hang out hundred percent it's hard it's harder harder to measure i think that's probably why people aren't doing it it's harder to measure like you can do an isokinetic test for your quad strength but hard to measure like yeah when you're i know you can do a i know you can do a uh like a alex Natera like a mid stance push or a knee iso push or something like that which is measuring a little bit of everything but harder to measure that stuff i would say but doesn't mean it's not valuable just because you just because you can measure something doesn't mean it's valuable and just because you can't measure something that well doesn't mean it's not that valuable so yeah well well, that's where the art of coaching comes in yeah thanks so um, so i've heard i spoke to jonas uh and he he spoke about and i've seen his model a little bit around um switching projection and reactivity and i wanted to ask you do you think because i've started to think a little bit in those words as well i actually have found it very helpful to break it down into break some of some of the gait cycle some parts of it i I like to break things down into like different parts of the stance phase and swing phase but then overall it's really nice for me to actually look at those three big words so do you think about those things early on in rehab as well and like have buckets of exercises and and qualities that you want to work on within those broader things
1: Uh, massively can you explain (laughs) yes are you ready um, okay, so it comes back down to um, so it comes back down to understanding the high intensity actions right so um when we think about projection switching reactivity, most people think of it in terms of either acceleration or max velocity Real, reality is it's 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 everything um it's change of direction it's deceleration it's 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 everything right um so if we break down acceleration to understanding what are the key components to it. Well, to project, you've got to have great plantar flexion, uh, uh, plantar flexion strength and rate of force. You've got to have eccentric qualities around the quad, so you can actually, and the, and the calf as well, so you can actually create a platform to push from. And then the big thing is you've got to be able to have really good hip extensor strength to push your hips forward, extend your hips into time and space. That's the projection go forward bit. And also a really stable and mobile pelvis. So, can I create big ranges and also, or one step back, can I go forward a lot and create big ranges, okay, so if we know that and appreciate that as being the main things that are responsible for projection and acceleration we can we can start to train those in regressed forms and then if we look at if we look at the reactivity side of it, well, yes we've got to have an achilles and, and an elastic uh, system that supports short ground contact times it stores and releases energy super quick, but the thing that some people miss is if you don't have a well, let's call it quasi isometrically eccentric isometric let's just call it that um strong quad well even if your ankle is super super strong if you don't have the ability to resist deformation of two times your body weight or three times your body weight in an acceleration you will crumble at the knee and if you crumble at the knee you can't be reactive so there's another really big thing that's going to influence our reactivity and then switching is really about pelvic and trunk control. So if I've got a, if I've got a stable trunk and I can I can coordinate hip extension and flexion while having a trunk that moves in lateral flexion and rotation to help contribute to that, I'm going to have a greater switching score or I'm going to be a little bit more proficient at switching. So if you understand the Physical things that support the actions of projection switching reactivity. You have your framework by which you can regress all those things and start training them really effectively at the the start of your rehab. And that's how, so I would do that for acceleration, max velocity, change direction, um, and uh, inclusive of deceleration. Um, And if you've got that framework, it makes things so easy to be able to target performance of high intensity actions because at the end of the day that's all, that's all we're trying to do like i think if your if your rehab process is solely to get the athlete back that's a that's a pretty low bar in my opinion like if we actually want them to go out there and feel like they can perform these actions that they earn their money and their paycheck from we better break it down understand it and develop the qualities associated to it and then on the other side of that, you've got your, your coach's eye. Like, are you able to identify some key factors that allow you to understand whether somebody lacks projection switching or reactivity? Or if that terminology doesn't work for you so much, the ability to go forward, the ability to exchange your limbs, and the ability to be a re- like explosive enough on the floor that your center of mass is actually able to climb up and out of running? Or do you just stay attached to the floor like a snail? and um, if you that, that's actually so i use two profiles in my in my acceleration training for for team sports and for rehab so i've got um so my snails are the people that stay really low to the ground and um, quite often very quad dominant strength dominant and um, so your are your heavy gym goers not always but most of the time and then you've got your bananas and your bananas are the people that just want to get upright because they're more bouncy and elastic um, and they want to utilize a little bit more of an elastic airborne solution to get to speed. And based on those two profiles, I'll then coach appropriately and train appropriately to turn the needle on their profile back to the middle a little bit more. So, for for example, if you're a snail and you're super strong and you just want to be on the floor, well, actually, I'm going to put a band around your waist and I'm going to encourage you to try and in acceleration training, for example. I'm going to, and, and broad jumps and rehab and all sorts of stuff. I'm going to encourage you to try and actually punch your hips up and into the band so you generate a bit more air time. And instead, so they need,
0: they need a bit more projection. So. Maybe more than anything else.
1: So your snails will actually, they'll project predominantly pretty well because they want to push, right? So they'll, they'll go forward a lot. But they so don't. No, not, not up. They're yeah, not the,
0: getting into max V
1: as much. Exactly. Their acceleration profile tends to be better than their max velocity profile. Um, hence why a lot team sport athletes tend to be snails because the job is done within a 5 to 10-meter radius, mainly. Mainly. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. Mainly. Um, so, so actually, can we do things that encourage them to orientate a little higher? Usually, if you're too ground-based, you'll see a big foot that lands in front of you. That's called a touchdown distance. So can we give them more air time to start to retract and reduce that touchdown distance? And can we give them a bit more elastic qualities so that when they do hit the ground, they're able to bounce off it rather than have to spend ages trying to push again. And if you understand that that's your profile in person you're dealing with, even if they've just done their ACL and you understand what they looked like before, all your, all your neuromuscular coordinative exercises can start to be tilted towards that side of the profile so that when they come back to acceleration, you're not spending six weeks trying to teach them. You're already putting in place the underpinning qualities and coordinations that help them develop and help them get there faster. So that's, to me, where projection switching reactivity comes in, in a rehab sense. Um, I look at it probably a little bit more as just, can you go forwards well? Can you climb into the air a little bit better? And are, you, are you comfortable attacking the ground hard and fast so you can bounce off? But projection switching reactivity genuinely is genius from jonas because it simplifies the complex and my god have speed works gone into the complex to be able to extrapolate the simple so i said like and that's where that i think that's where good simplification comes from um versus bad simplification where it's just like it's just running what are you talking about
0: yeah yeah because yeah Jonas could make something or you could make something very simple with those three words or even probably make it even much simpler than that if you wanted to but then like if you ask the question around switching you can go I can go another layer deeper or another layer deeper or another layer deeper so I think I've said this so many times that simplicity needs to come from complexity not from just ignorance and a lot of people's like quote-unquote simplicity is just ignorance or it's just stupidity it's just putting your head in the sand and thinking like so or self-organization these people will figure it out Uh, and you, you mentioned i think at the very start like that that athletes will like the presumption that athletes will find better solutions i I'm not so sure. I know. I know they'll find some kind of a solution, but it doesn't mean it's better.
1: (laughs) Well, honestly, it doesn't. I've yet to see it happen. Where this argument, where we are just going to get brutally strong, and then all of a sudden they find a new solution to to a task that they've constantly failed at. Honestly, in ten years of coaching in professional sport, I've yet to see it. Like it's just it's it's lazy. It's it's. It's almost like, and and I'm not bagging constraint-based coaching here because I actually use it fairly regularly, but the next layer down to it is, right, we know kind of what the the issue is. We're just gonna constrain it so we don't need to talk to the athlete or we don't need to really intricately see movement. Now, if you're dealing with big, big teams, I totally understand it and I do it regularly myself. But if you're working one-on-one, one-on-two and you've got the time luxury, we need to start to delve into movement and understand and use our words and coach and, and connect to the athlete with whatever it is, cueing, examples, demos, feedback loops, all the rest of it to try and actually help the athlete learn, not just run in a dribble with our arm up because he lacks system stiffness on the left-hand side, so we'll create fake stiffness by lifting our arm up. Like, yeah. that might go 5% of the way to doing the job but it doesn't. You want educated, well-rounded athletes who understand what they're trying to do, and it, that's where the movement coaching comes in. I think.
0: Hundred percent. And most of these athletes, I find, like they are not just athletes. Like I work with all different types of people. They actually are really interested in learning about this stuff. Once, like once you can keep it simple, speak to them in their language, and actually help them understand like why it's valuable which really they inherently understand it once they feel it anyway they start to feel like yeah that feels good i feel like pain pain wise maybe i feel better or performance wise i feel a bit better they start to learn and yeah you start to it takes time that's that's maybe a lot of the issue sometimes with coaches is that they feel like they don't have the time to to do this stuff but yeah i don't know you get an you get an athlete it's a very enjoyable thing to start if you see an athlete develop in front of your eyes and learn and pretty much be able to eventually coach themselves which is a very nice thing
1: the um, one of the cool things that's happened recently at speedworks bath is so it's the time of the year where in england it's um it's uh, what do you call it for school kids uh where they go out and they do a job for for their for their school work experience um so it's work experience time for the school kids and we have, I coach a lot of 16, 17-year-olds um, who are transitioning towards being pros. And honestly, I've had about 15 of them be like, can we come and do work experience at Speedworks Bath? We want to, we want to learn what you, like, what you teach us so that we can do what you do. And I, I think that's just such a cool like, nod to kids and athletes, men and women, senior athletes, they care about how they move. Like yes, they care about the outcome, but they also care about the process. And yeah, that's uh I, I think I'm about to be inundated with a bunch of sixteen-year-olds who are all desperate to understand how to coach acceleration or how to coach a sidestep or whatever it is.
0: Is that is that because you've had like Anthony Watson and people like that? Are they are they looking at that and saying like that's cool?
1: Yeah, they they love the the like all even even coaches even adults love like seeing the pros do that, especially if they're idols, right? And and Anthony's an idol to a lot of people. Like he's a super great guy. He's a great athlete and he's just a good person. Um so they want to emulate and be like him and do the stuff that he's doing. But also they actually just showcase an interest in like what it is we're doing. Because we do we use a lot of we use a lot of a lot of tech um and we we do a lot of reports and biomechanical feedback and force play all sorts of stuff. And they just if you're that way inclined, where if you don't know something, you want to learn more, it seems to attract people who are just like, teach me. Let, me. let me know what it is. Why does this mean? And it's really, really cool to be surrounded on a daily basis by people like that, even if they're 16 and they've got bad taste in music. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm actually on my music. I'm actually f- completely frozen in time at the moment, where like my playlist is still just Eminem and Fifty Cent and Oasis. Like I've just yeah. I never yeah. thought I would be that person. Like my, my, I was driving with my, my dad when I was 16. Like he was listening to Pink Floyd and all these people. Yeah. I, I was like, you're just you're just listening to people that you liked when you were younger, and now I'm in that I'm in that exact situation now. And I'm yeah. I'm, I'm not apologizing for it. I don't yeah, no, think like, you
1: should. <laughs> I got I got some very strange looks for playing the Fleetwood Mac album the other day in the gym. Um, and it got, it got replaced quickly by by a, a rapper called Dave and it was on for it was, a, it was a big session, it was like an hour and a half long session. And Dave's album went from start to finish and I genuinely thought we'd listen to the same song and repeat for an hour and a half. <laughs> so
0: I'll have to have a look.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, like give me your feedback. <laughs>
0: On on those three points, then the projection, switching, and reactivity. Um, when it comes to plyometrics and thinking about training those type of things, can you give us some examples of how you might bucket exercises or coach some plyometric exercises? Obviously, in whenever it like in the mid stage of rehab, or for anyone yeah. who's not doing rehab, Otherwise. it's all it's all it's all the same. It's all useful, I think.
1: Yeah, so I I actually use uh this is maybe one to, to for people to if they if they do actually listen to to me chatting about ACLs um have a have a read at Mike Young um wrote an article I don't know how long ago but it's a long time ago now um on plyometrics and a framework for your plyometric protocols and it's on an Elite Track I still remember it because I still look at it every well, at least once a year I look at it. Um, and he talks about the three things that you can do to kind of uh, uh, manage your variables of plyometrics, and they are collision intensity, so that's influenced by drop height or or distance, uh, collision time, um, so that's influenced by uh, your surface that you're going to that you're going to make contact with, and then the other one is what's the third one? Collision intensity, collision time, and might be compl- it might be complexity of task. I need to go and double check it. Um, but basically, these three variables give us an opportunity to create a framework to understand what's the most stressful um, type of kind of continuum for our plyometrics. And early stage, you're really looking just down the further down the chain. So it might be that like you've done a bunch of posting on these these let's call them wall pogos. I don't sorry if I bastardized your uh, your drill, but wall pull That's pogos. what
0: they're called. Yeah. What? Well, we have different
1: variations, but yeah, basically wall pogo, yeah. Okay, cool. So, so wall pogo's um, like real low-key. They teach uh, co-contractions around the ankle, the knee, the hip. Um, hell, if you do it with your arms raised and et cetera, it even teaches co-contractions across the slings, et cetera. It's brilliant. Um, Form there. Okay, well, you're, you're going against a wall. Can we take it vertically? Because horizontal is easier than vertically. Okay, let's go vertically and see if we can do the same kind of thing. Now, that beat might be band-assisted. It might be non-band-assisted. Now once we go, now we're on a roll, now we're going to start to look at cyclical movements like hopping, for example. And we're going to hop low level over cones or over hurdles. And then from there, and again, you can change the the impact intensity via the the flowing. So I have a few different surfaces that I like to use. So I'll use a gymnastics mat, which is real low key. Most Most people can do that two and a half, three months post ACL surgery, just low level cyclical hopping. You couldn't probably go out to the the concrete playground and go do it you'd probably you'd probably feel the effects from a knee point of view but probably from a shin point of view as well um Mm -hmm. take away the take away the gymnastics mat and let's go to like a foam yoga mat still soft but a little harder and then finally onto the gym flooring, which is actually in my gym it's fairly hard Um, and then eventually you can start to take it outside in the summer months to hard grass or whatever that might be and then again, moving on from like cyclical hops, like it's still hopping because it's on one leg up and down. But ver- single leg tuck jumps and bilateral is always easier than unilateral from a stress and and distribu- That's his third one: distribution of distribution of stress. That was what it was. Um, so bilateral to unilateral, and then you can start to look at moving that across the ground for more horizontal propulsion. And um, instead of breaking it down into projection, switching, and reactivity. It's more like, can I do it from a low stress to a high stress or low amplitude to a high amplitude? Can I do it horizontal, vertically on the spot to then actually horizontally covering ground? So I have a combination of vertical and horizontal vectors until I'm able to tolerate what's essentially the hardest thing, which is like triple triple jumps, triple bounding, sprinting is one of those ones that is going to be one of the most aggressive. And somewhere in that whole continuum of plyometrics, Loaded sled accelerations are still a plyometric. Like, they're not in the plyometric continuum, but you've got to recognize that that stress, like, it, it adds to the volume of plyometric stress that you're undergoing and undertaking. And then way back at the start, because I forgot to mention it, Calditz's like, spring ankle. I don't know if you've come across that. You probably have. Um, basically, it's, it's all that integrated foot-ankle complex work um, and gradually progressing the stress of impacts it goes from non-impact to impact Our brilliant way of developing like if we wanted to call it the stiffness or the reactivity component and the eccentric and isometric quad and ankle components that actually provide you the foundation to utilize your stretch shortening cycle which is really your your achilles um so that would be that would be how i layer it in and progress it in and by the time you're accelerating you're already right up there in the continuum by the time you're sprinting you should already be right at the top end because if you are like some of my athletes and can run at 11 meters per second the amount of stress that is going through the entire system but also the ankle and the achilles is vast so you better have done all the work beforehand so yeah
0: do you do you play around with complexity much like 3d
1: stuff loads loads yeah yeah lots of lots of rotations Um, Lots of landing mechanics and takeoff mechanics, understanding how to manipulate the the angle of orientation, understanding how to play with the inside and outside edges of your feet, um, which I know I I get, like, the whole supination, pronation thing, which is just so valuable. We do a lot of Polish boxes, so slanted boxes and boxes of variable height so that you constantly have to pretense landing uh, prior to landing. Um, And then one of the things I like the most is... I'll do like, um, for lack of a better word, like an obstacle course, a plyometric obstacle course. And there'll be multiple surfaces, some of them super soft, some of them super hard, some high, some low, some slanted, etc. cetera. And basically, can you just develop elastic endurance of multi-variance variants is probably going to do a pretty good job of preparing you for the demands of chaos and sport? Um, yeah, well, probably so probably. If, you, if you're doing all that stuff, like, you're probably doing a pretty good job as long as you're still doing your sprints and your accelerations your decels all that stuff
0: i love that i had a client years i actually think i have a video of this and um she was in a she was in a car accident and she had some like pretty bad nerve issues and then one leg she lost a lot of feeling into her foot and altered the leg and she was a crossfitter like a really good crossfitter and we got her back to a certain stage like I don't know there was some talk from the doctors like that you're not going to get much feeling back but also they weren't exactly sure so we just kind of ignored that and just kept going anyway. And like we started off with simple drills like basically she's she was lying on my on my plint and I was she had her eyes closed and like I was touching at one of her toes and asking her which toe I'm touching that type of thing you know so simple things and like all the way then up to those that plyo stuff where she was going over obstacle courses with little bit of like outside here like it was grass it was the the plates in the gym it was soft surfaces mats all that stuff and that stuff accelerated her progress in terms of sensation in terms of like learning to pre-activate again because all that was gone for her didn't know where like she couldn't feel her foot in space her body had no idea where her limb was in space even her walking she couldn't walk she couldn't balance on a single leg and those those plyometrics those type of things like she really sticks out in my mind accelerated her more than anything else i think because now obviously we have to build her up to that but the, the interesting thing with that is she like all the other a lot of the other lower level stuff like she was trying so hard to focus on the sensation whereas this stuff or that stuff she wasn't focusing on the sensation because she didn't have time. Like it wasn't like, I can tell you what my second toe was doing when I did in this landing, but her mm-hmm. nervous system or whatever it is, is like soaking up so much information. And then when she goes and walks afterwards, she was like, I can feel so much here. It's like, it just updated these reflexes and sensations again. So I think that stuff is super cool. Again, like hard to measure, but
1: yeah, definitely. very, very valuable. Oh, it's like, once somebody's cut into your body, so with a scalpel and they've started chopping up your joints and ligaments and various things like the afferent feedback. Like I think we sometimes forget like what a surgery actually is. Like they cut you open, split you apart and dug around and maybe even taking something out and put another thing in. There's not even your own maybe. Like and the afferent feedback loops that go from, from joint and muscle um, and tendon and soft tissue and all that stuff to brain like there's no wonder that gets like dulled down significantly so the more the more neuromuscular work the more contraction work that forces rate coding and all the things that we know the brain does from a from a muscular point of view and a nervous system point of view the more we can upregulate that stuff the better
0: i think 100 100 and it's no wonder that like just working on isolated strength is not going to update all that stuff why would your Just because you have a stronger quad now, like, why would your nervous system choose to still want to use that area in that way, along with the hamstring, along with the gastrox and the soleus, and like along with the trunk control and blah blah blah, every single thing? Like, why would it want to? Obviously, like, the the logical thing is that it's just going to avoid using that regardless of how much strength you have, unless you actually update these motor patterns. So, that's, that's that frustrates me.
1: Yeah, the path of least resistance isn't it. Be really smart man. It's a it's a bloody clever okay. thing, man. and it'll just reroute. Um, okay. mate, can I disappear for thirty seconds? I'll be back. Come <laughs> <for> on. It. <laughs> Sorry David. I'm not sure if it's usual usual practice to have your podcast, I guess, just run off med, med podcast.
0: <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Don't, Don't worry. worry. There's nothing yeah. usual. There's literally nothing usual about our podcast. <laughs> anything goes. Right, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um
0: okay, so last question. What um do you want to tell us a bit about their mentorship or let people know like what well, an- anything you want to let let people know where they can find you and watch, uh, what would be a good thing if they want to learn more from you.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so you can find me, I think I'm most active on Instagram. So if you want to have a look at some of the stuff that we're doing, which is speedworks.bath. Um, but the the thing that we are, we're going to release, uh, we have released two cohorts so far, but we are, we're we're going to release the, the third one in October. Um, and it's the thing that I'm most proud of, I guess, in terms of what I've managed to achieve so far in my career. And it's this, Mentorship, which is a eight week, I've put together an eight week course, um, which covers the three areas that I feel like I've learned the most about, that allows me to to deliver the service that I can deliver to to my to my athletes, um, and that's coach's eye, um, which we cover everything from looking at things side on and understanding things um, from an acceleration and a max velocity point of view. What are our Really, I've tried to simplify it right down because I've spent the last four or five years just obsessing about speed science and, and and biomechanics, kinematics, kinetics, all this stuff. But I appreciate that not very many people have got five years to give to that side of things, um, which is pretty normal. Uh, so I've done it right down. I've distilled it into everything that I think is important. And it's based basically on how I coach day to day. Um, there's some great case studies, there's tasks associated to it and the feedback on it has been, I think it's the thing I'm so happy about, there's been about 25 people go through it and the feedback on it has been that a lot of practitioners have said it's given them the, that epiphany moment in terms of coaching eye and understanding movement, um, so there's a there's a cool story actually, I'm, I'm rehabbing a, a soldier at the moment which is not our usual clientele but it, it came through at a request and um, and the, the guy's a great guy, and he's struggled for he's now struggled for three years with this um, chronic uh, chronic hip pain and kind of ITB syndrome. Um, and he's been to consultants all over the country, abroad, the army have spent hundreds of thousands on trying to trying to rehab this guy, and nothing has worked. He keeps um, he keeps having to pull out of, of the stuff that he's doing. Um, and anyway, he came to me, and I just. I figured, I looked at all the case studies around what he's done, and I was like, right, there's, there's, there's nothing here that hasn't been done other than just, let's just get him to run. And I got him running to the point where, like, let's just, let's just look at him. So he's running, and he's like, I can feel it. It's starting to come on. So we're looking at it from a frontal plane view. We're looking at it from a side-on view, et cetera. And there's a few things that stood out to me. It's like, the guy lacks massive degrees of internal rotation when he's on on flexion I, I was
0: just about to say when i hear it band i just think internal rotation like every yeah. time <laughs>
1: so he, he, he's messing internal rotation but not only is he missing internal rotation he doesn't want to often what you'll find is if you if you don't have internal rotation you'll dump at the foot you'll you'll pronate excessively to try and find force closure and generate some kind of propulsion cool um but he wasn't doing that like at all. He was rolling off like this really low gear strategy off his little toe. Um to the point where it was like it looked very strange. He was like flicking um out and up and behind him. So I did some tests, had a look, did some therapy. We spent eight weeks regaining internal rotation. I discovered that he'd broken his toe um as a rugby player before his um before his soldier career. And then there was also big some toe. very broken broken big toe. Um, so yeah. There we go. Yeah. So, yeah, so we've got poor internal rotation. We've got poor pronation, courtesy of um, a lack of wanting to roll through the, the first rail, the big toe. And then also he, he had some real strange strategies to try and give him propulsion through the left shoulder. Well, he'd had a, he'd had a left shoulder arthroscopy, and so it's right right hip to give clarity. Left shoulder's not functioning properly. The shoulder girdle's not really working that well. The scapula's not rotating over the ribcage. Okay, so we've got three big areas that we're going we're to target. All the physical tests, the force plates, the jumping, the, every, the isometric test, everything. The guy's symmetrical in terms of strength. But you can't run more than a K, and he's an elite soldier. Right. Yeah. So we're going to target the left shoulder and scapula. We're going to try and get that moving a little bit freer. There's still a bit of work to do, but it's improving. We're going to hammer internal rotation so he can actually stretch the glute before he makes contact with the floor and we're going to do a whole bunch of work around his big toe. And lo and behold, eight weeks later, uh, we're actually at week 10 now, actually, um, and we're up, to, we're up to loaded 10Ks. We're sprinting faster than he's ever sprinted before. He's in a place where he can go and do what he needs to go and do. Um, and It just is proof-putting that if you understand movement and you can see movement and analyze, and it doesn't mean, if I see this, it means that, that's not how it works. If I see this, I'm going to ask questions and do some testing around the thing that I think might be linked to it. We make changes that genuinely I don't think people think are possible. And it comes back to the whole UKSEA, accreditation, learning, all this stuff. If people don't give you the, the, the tools to be able to upregulate your coach's eye and see movement, which is why, by the way, shout out to David Gray because I think you do a great job of this. Um, like, <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, um, <laughs> this you. is this is what it's just so so important and that's a really big part of the mentorship and then the other two I won't talk about it too much but I'd go through you it know, all. I just
0: interrupt you for what, I'll just interrupt you for one sec, Al. You know what that is, what you just described there? It's actually faith in the body. It's, you have faith that, like, you look, you, s- you see the shoulder, that's not, that's not moving well. You see this hip, that's not moving well. You see this foot or ankle, that's not moving particularly well. It's not like, you're not, you're not labeling it like, this is bad, this is exactly what the problem is. It's just faith in the body that you have a shoulder for a reason, and you were born with a shoulder that can move in certain ways, and I'm just going to get it moving again. I'm just going to get that hip moving again. I'm going to get that foot moving again. And guess what? The body, I have so much faith in the body and the nervous system that when you just give it back the things that it's lost, it sucks it up. It absolutely loves it. And I think you're right that people are, people actually don't believe that these changes are possible because they've never tried to and they've never seen it, but they're 100% possible. And it's actually such an insult to the body and the nervous system to think that these these changes aren't possible you have a shoulder that hasn't moved in 10 years like that two weeks one week two two reps could potentially get that back moving again it's it's such an insult to the body and the nervous system and the complexity of the body to think these changes aren't possible so have faith if you work on the right things it's going to work so love it. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Yeah, that may I,
1: I do think that's a brilliant way to put it. Like have faith in the body, just understand what you're looking at and ask the right questions and then give the give the body what movement is suggesting it needs and stick with it, stick with it for a little while and you will start to see improvements and if you don't, you've either seen the wrong thing or you're targeting the wrong thing and then just reset and go again. And that's what my last 3 years have been just asking questions and solving a lot of really tricky problems and also not solving some and learning from the ones that I've not solved and asking better questions. And that really is what the coach's eye section is all about. Um, The rehab stuff is my entire philosophy around training. So my rehab, because I was a rehab coach, I had to form a really solid philosophy that influenced my practice because in that world it had to be objectified and rationalized. And I built that out over time to something that's really quite detailed and has frameworks on everything from joint restoration all the way through to apply metrics, all the way through to running and reconditioning, change of direction, gain speed, all that type of stuff. Um, and then I've got a couple of really nice case studies in there, one of which is Anthony Watson, which is which is just incredibly detailed and highlights the entire system done differently, um, which is the feedback on that has been brilliant. It's helped quite a few people, practitioners mainly, and, and in, the, in the therapy and the medical world, actually, use some of those tools and ideas to get their people back quicker which has been i'm super happy that that's actually helped a few people um and then the final part is the whole transfer of training game speed stuff so we do and i do a lot of talk around transfer of training um because i think that's our missing link uh, when it comes to performance i think we we, we are okay generally at developing qualities and The coaches tend to take training out of practitioners' hands and deal with it over in this bubble over here. And there's just this giant disconnect. And the game speed model is wholeheartedly about bridging the gap between the two to make sure that we actually see change when it comes to training. And we have to take that into our own hands. It covers a lot of motor learning literature and motor learning um, frameworks, a lot of attentional reserve and drill design. Um, and understanding complexity and progressing the different variables from decision making, skill acquisition, roles, et cetera, and laying out drills that help that transfer happen. So um it's eight weeks long. It is it comes with a couple of virtual calls with me um and within it. And yeah, that's that's the that's the next big project, and it's been something I've probably poured six months into and it's it's been a very eye-opening experience to be able to confirm some of the things that I think that I know but also really challenge some of the things that I thought I knew and now I think differently so it's been um it's been class and uh yeah I, I really hope it can it can help some people in the industry see things a bit differently so that's
0: awesome man that sounds great it sounds like something that's massively missing and sounds sounds brilliant so I would encourage people to definitely Definitely check that out if they're if they're interested. Um, and yeah, what's your Instagram?
1: Uh, speedworks.bath.
0: Speedworks.bath. Okay. We'll link it down below and um anything else. Alan, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time, your thoughts, your energy, and what you're doing for the industry. And I think it's only the start for you, as far as I can see. So I think you're definitely going to make big waves and already are so please keep doing what you're doing and uh, thanks again
1: Mate, thanks so much for having me on pleasure
0: hey guys david here again i hope you really enjoyed that episode with alan i thought it was phenomenal i learned a ton from it and it's nice to see a coach and someone working in the rehab uh realm really interested in movement quality getting people helping people move really well observing movement coaching movement and actually seeing that transfer over, it's a really big deal. It's something that you should all be working on or we all need to work on and try and really understand what's happening with people, help them, help people move in ways that they're struggling to move, open up parts of their body that were previously injured, get it working, not, not just get it strong or mobile, get it working with all parts of the body, open up all these opportunities. So I want to say thanks to Alan for so much for coming on. Uh, we, I actually had almost nothing planned for that episode. Uh, I had like one point written on my little, uh, on the back of an envelope, I didn't even have a sheet of paper, I think. And we just, we just went for it. So it was a, it was a, it was a great chat and yeah, I just wanted to remind you guys, DGR Interactive is there, a member site, I'll link it down in the bio or in the show notes. It has, it's basically where we have like 800 coaches and therapists who, just go to learn Next it's like a netflix where you can just flick on and, and watch any kind of video that you want to learn about so we have a gate section we have a Kind of a running sprinting and change of direction section it's all 10 15 minute videos short videos there's guest presentations we have a plyometric section we have like a foot and ankle section then when we go down into body parts a hip section a pelvis section a spine and rib section and a lot of it is just like little clips from me working with clients and saying here's a little here's some things i saw with this client here's some exercises that you can do um yeah just loads and loads of stuff like that gait analysis simple digestible stuff that makes you a better coach a better therapist and it doesn't take hours and hours and hours to do that 10 or 15 minutes a week and you will learn a thing, a ton so i'll put the link in the in the show notes thank you again for listening and i will chat to you all next week